this morning. Father, thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for how you've changed us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to this earth and lived a perfect life, perfect lamb of God, spotless without blemish. He laid down his life for me, for the entire world and all those who would place their faith and trust in him. Lord, we love you today. This is all for you, Jesus. It's all yours, everything we do. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we began in the beginning with Adam and Eve, as you know, and uh, then went to Cain and Abel and Noah. And I'm reviewing this so you'll get to know it as well. Then the Tower of Babel, then Abraham, then Isaac, his son, then Jacob, then Joseph, and then Moses as he led two million people out of slavery, then Joshua and Caleb, those two spies that believed God for the victory, and Joshua defeating Jericho and Rahab putting her faith in the God of Israel. Then Deborah and Gideon, two great judges in that 400-year period of the judges when they conquered the land. And then we came to Ruth, this woman that left Moab and trusted in the God of Israel and becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Then the great prophet of God, Samuel, who bridged the nation of Israel from being a theocracy run by God, Samuel being the prophet, to being a kingdom run by various kings. Saul was the first king. He was a failure. But we've been studying David the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at his life again. There's no one in the Bible that has written more about than David. And we're going to spend another week talking about David. Last week, we talked about David conquering Goliath. And the example that he set for us about conquering our giants, the struggles in our lives, you know what they are. And God gave us a strategy through the example of David, a young man who had faith to believe God for the victory. Today I want to talk about this, going from bad to worse. David was anointed the next king of Israel. You would think that, oh man, my life is sweet. I'm going to take the throne after Saul. I'll be the next king. Samuel anointed me. Out of all my brothers, I was the one that God picked. My life is going to be easy. But that's not what happened. Things went from bad to worse in the life of of David. But God was still in control. God was still shaping and molding this young man to be the greatest king that Israel would ever know. The bottom line is this. When life's storms and trials flood into David's life, he overcomes them by praising his God and deepening his relationship with him. See, I don't know if you're like me, but there have been times in my life when trials and uh, storms come into my life and it tends to push me away. It tends to make me wonder, God, what are you doing? God, you're failing in the God department here. I want you to change your strategy. Right? I want things to change. But David doesn't turn in rebellion against God. David worships God. He deepens his relationship with God. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't have your Bibles nearby... Uh, with you, I mean, there's one nearby. <clears throat> we love, <clears throat> excuse me, having our Bibles open at Riverview Church. I'm going to start at 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. You know, David just had this amazing victory. He defeated Goliath, and they're on their way back from battle. <clears throat> it says this in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. As they, who are they? Saul, David, all the soldiers, we're coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. That sounds good so far, right? 
They came with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul liked that, didn't he? Saul has struck down his thousands. And David his what? His ten thousands. Saul being the egomaniac that he was, that angered him. You can read the next verse. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Now Saul sees David as a threat to his reign, to his throne. And Saul eyed David from that day on. What does that mean? It means that Saul kept a close watch on David with a, with a jealousy. He didn't like David. David was a threat to him. Read verse 14. It says this. <clears throat> and David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. If you were a wise king, Saul, you would say, hey, God's with him. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to keep him close to me. I'm not going to be jealous of him. I'm not going to try to kill him. But Saul doesn't do that. He does become jealous of David and wants to kill him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him, meaning that he didn't trust him. He saw him as a threat. And all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So things were looking bad for David. In fact, it says this in the Bible. Excuse me. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, this is verse 28, and that Michael, his wife, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy, what? Continually, every day, Saul hated David. Look at verse 19, chapter 19, verse 10. It says this. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. Saul had a spear. He was going to kill David. He was going to take the spear and throw it and pin David to the wall. But David eluded Saul so that the spear struck into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house, really guards, right, to keep an eye on David, to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Where did he go? Eventually, he ended up in caves, hiding from Saul, hiding from this king who had armies behind him who wanted to kill David. See, things were going from bad to worse. And David ends up in the caves of Judah. You can see it on the map. That red circle indicates where David was at. See, David loses his promising position. He was kind of the, uh, the armor bearer for Saul, the anointed one who'd be the king, and now he's living in caves. He loses his close relationships. He has to flee from his own wife through a window to escape the murderous plans of Saul. He is separated from his mentor, the prophet Samuel, who anointed him to be king. He's also separated from his best friend, Jonathan, who happened to be the son of Saul. Jonathan was the man that should have, by right, been the next king. But Jonathan loved David and knew that God was blessing David. So he was behind David and protected David, but they were separated because David was now fleeing for his life. 
David also loses his personal dignity. As he's living in a cave, he becomes caveman David, no longer living in the palace. Things were not looking good for David, from bad to worse. And I want to ask you today, what happens in your life? When you face struggles, when circumstances don't go your way, and there's an emotional pain that you have, maybe it's a physical pain, maybe it's an illness that some of you are dealing with today. What happens when those circumstances hit, those storms of life? I define storms this way. Difficult circumstances beyond my control, which are allowed by God or decreed by God. All of us have storms. All of us have those times in our life that are difficult. If you're not going through a storm now, life has an amazing way of bringing storms into your life. And they are either allowed by God or decreed by Him. Sometimes people struggle with that. They say, Mel, really? God will decree a storm to come into my life? Absolutely. There, there are times when he disciplines me if I start getting off the path that he's laid out for me. He loves me too much to allow me to continue down that path, so he brings a storm in my life to bring me back, to humble me, right? That's exactly what happened with the thorn in the flesh with Saul, who later became Paul, the apostle. Paul had this thorn in his flesh, and he prayed three times, probably three seasons of prayer. God, take this out of my life. But you'll read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 how Paul finally discovered that God had those in his life to keep him relying on God, not himself. They were tools by God to bring about growth in the life of the Apostle Paul. See, the choice is this. Do I respond with a growing faith like David does? Or do I respond with destructive disobedience? If you want to get an idea of what David's heart was like in the caves, we should turn our Bibles to Psalm 57. In fact, do that. Turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 57. This psalm is a psalm that David wrote while fleeing for his life. I would have been wondering, God, are you really going to keep your promise and give me the throne, or am I going to die at the spear of Saul? Am I going to end up dead in this cave? But David had a faith in God. Let me read to you the first few verses of Psalm 57. If you read the notation above the psalm, it says this, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, a psalm of David when he fled from Saul in the what? In the cave. He writes this in the cave. He says this, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms, there it is, the storms of life, right? The storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Here's the first lesson I can learn from David, who in the cave, running for his life, a quote-unquote fugitive, writes this amazing psalm. Lesson number one, remember, The storms of life in no way negate the awesome promises of God. What are the awesome promises of God? Here's one. God will never leave you or forsake you. That's an awesome promise. Here's another awesome promise. Romans 8.28. God works all things together for what? For good. Exactly. You might say, well, Mel, how, how does that happen? Ultimately, God works everything together for good. 
And the storms of life do not negate those powerful, awesome promises. We have to stay faithful, step by step, moment by moment. David in his cave turns to God. He says, God, I run to you for refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I take my refuge. He doesn't get angry, doesn't start complaining, attacking God. Great lesson for me. Great lesson for you. Remember, the storms of life in no way negate the awesome promises of God. He takes his refuge in God till the storms of destruction pass by. See, for the rest of Saul's life, he would be out to kill David. It says it right in the Bible. Uh, David became Saul's enemy the rest of his days. Now I want to give you some uh, false teachings that are out in the church. And I want you to reject these false teachings. Here's false teaching number one. Reject the false teaching or belief that God has failed if I have problems. It's kind of out there that that God somewhere is failing if I have a problem, but that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have what? Overcome the world. See, it's in the problems and the trials that God often begins to shape us and mold us and develop in us the character that he desires to accomplish in our lives. Here's the second false teaching is this. Reject the false belief that says that God guarantees me health and wealth if I obey him, if I trust him, if I have faith in him. That's called a prosperity theology. And it kind of plays well in America But if you're like me and have gone to some of the poorest countries in the world, you know that doctrine doesn't play well there, amen? Doesn't play well. Some of the godliest people have absolutely nothing. And by the way, what's even more important than that is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that if you have more faith, God will bless you with wealth and you'll be happy your entire life. You know, the thorn in the flesh that I just talked about is a powerful example that speaks against that false teaching, that prosperity theology. God kept that painful thorn in Paul's life to keep him relying on God. Do you remember the advice Paul gave to Timothy, this young pastor who had stomach problems? He said this, hey, Timothy, take a little wine for your frequent stomach ailments. To use wine as a medicinal element for those ailments that you have. Now, if faith would have healed Timothy, then Paul gave Timothy lousy advice. Paul should have written to Timothy, hey, Timothy, up your faith. More faith and those stomach ailments will be gone. This uh, false teaching is something that aggravates me quite a bit because I had personal experience with it when my mom was 87 and, and approaching her death. She was struggling with neuropathy or or nerve damage in her legs. It was very painful for her. And she was living in Florida. She remarried another man after my father passed away. And while she was in Florida, some people from a local church came by to visit her. And they told my mother, hey, Martha, if you would just increase your faith, those problems would be gone. If Martha, just have more faith and God will heal you. In essence, blaming my mom for the lack of healing. Now, I've shared with you in the past, when we pray for healing, we always pray believing that God is able. We're expecting a miracle when we pray, that God is able to heal. But I've also said this, God is able, but not 
obligated to heal, right? We pray believing for a miracle. God is able to heal. That's where our faith lies, but God's not obligated to. And I know that matches the personal experience that you probably have had and I've had. Friends that had thousands of people praying in faith for a healing, but that friend passed away from that cancer or tumor. And prosperity theology is a lie. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible tells us that in our problems and our trials, God can shape us and mold us, that God can speak to us most powerfully in our moments of weakness. I remember when I was in the Midwest, the Unitarian Church, which is a belief that says all roads lead to God, and as long as you're a sincere man, you're going to get there. They had a campaign to grow their church. They had billboards to grow their church, and their motto was this. Here's the motto. Instead of me fitting a religion, I found a religion to fit me. Who's the God of that religion, by the way? Me, self. Totally contrary to the Bible, right? I don't want to trust my wisdom for my religion. I don't want to trust me. I want to trust the person that died and rose again. And everyone else that contradicts the person that died and rose again will die and stay dead, right? I want to follow the God that died and rose again because his words have authority. We come to God on his terms. And the reality is this. We live in a sinful world that's in rebellion against God, and sometimes that impacts all of us, his children, And it can be painful, and it can hurt, and it can be debilitating. But our challenge is to walk a walk of faith. See, the storms of life do not negate the promises of God. Here's reality number two. It's this. Seek to find and fulfill God's purposes when the storms of life come. So that's what David says. Verse 2, he's in the cave. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his what? His purpose for me. That's awesome to me that God for every one of us has a purpose. He has a plan. He has a project that he's working on. And God wants to fulfill his purpose in you and in me. We need to find that out. God, instead of saying, God, why me? We've said this before. We should say, God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what's my growth edge in my life through this challenge, through this trial? David was being shaped to be the most amazing king Israel would ever know through his moments in the cave, through his trials and his difficulty. And Psalm 57 is a powerful psalm of this young man who says, hey, God, I'm not turning from you. I'm running to you. I'm taking refuge in you. See, here's the thing. God is sovereign over all. That's the God that we serve. We do not serve a weak, impotent God. We serve a God who's sovereign over all. He works in mysterious ways, but here's the next truth. God is working in us. That there is a God who actually knows you. He knows everything about you, and he's working in your life. And here's the next great promise. It's this. God is pursuing a good outcome in our lives. That's Romans 8, 28. You've heard the verse. I can't stand when I hear pastors or others try to challenge this truth. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I've had people say to me, well, what about the martyrs around the world every week 
who die because they name the name of Jesus. Yeah, God worked that out for good. They went from this life to where? Eternal life. That's a good outcome. All of us one day will die. We are all, every day, one day closer to the end of our lives. And it is very wise for us, a very healthy thing to realize, my life will come to an end. Am I ready? Am I ready to step from this life to eternal life? God will work out a good outcome for all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. David says it, man. God, I want you to fulfill your purpose in me. This one quote I read a number of years ago, and I've loved it, and I've kept it close to my heart. It says this, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be a stronger person. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. If I did that, I would do nothing. The prayer instead should be pray for powers equal to your what? To your tasks. Here's our task, Riverview Church. It's to make an impact in this world for Christ to make a difference for eternity, to glorify God, to be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. I sometimes wonder, what do atheists rejoice in? There must be so much emptiness in their life. And this is not a crutch, right? This is based on the historical reality of Jesus Christ alive 2,000 years ago. No scholar, any reputable, reputable scholar would ever deny that Jesus existed, right? Never deny that. But the reality of this Jesus died and rose again. And it gives his words authority. And our task is to glorify him and make a difference in this world that will last for eternity. Don't be sidetracked into the trivial, the stuff that doesn't really matter. So you probably uh, are familiar, maybe you've read in the past, James chapter 1. When James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. It's an amazing process that he outlines there. The trials will come. Why? We can turn there. James, if you have your Bibles, turn there to James. It says this. <clears throat> For you know that the testing of your faith produces a James 1, verse 2 and 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So God is testing your faith. He's bringing about perseverance in your life to make you stronger. Like the coach who lines up all his athletes on the end line and they run sprints for the next 20 minutes. It hurts. It's painful. It's not easy. But it makes them stronger. That's exactly what the trials in our lives are doing. Bringing about perseverance. What's the goal? that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God has the goal of bringing Mel Svensson somehow to maturity. Mel, you're not there yet, but I'm going to keep working on your life because I love you. I don't want you to stay in mediocrity. I'm going to keep working in your life through the trials that come when you live in a sinful world, but my goal is a good one. Mel, I want to make you mature in your walk with God. See, that's where the joy is. Consider it all joy that we have a God who's working like that, who knows you like that. You are not forgotten. You are part of the body of Christ, and God knows you. Every day that you will live, he knows before you ever live them. So that leads me to the third thing I see in this passage. Trust God's eternal plan when faced with short-term pain. This is what David writes. Verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. God, I believe down the road you have an eternal plan. You will save me. 
I'm looking down the road. I'm not getting caught up in the negative stuff that's happening right now. I'm looking beyond it to your greater purpose, your greater plan, the uh, eternal perspective that God wants you and me to have. He wants us to have that. If you have that, that's a blessing to look beyond this storm because you will not enter the storm the same way in which you leave the storm. You will be a different person if you allow God to work in you. So he says, as my soul is in the midst of lions, man, in the cave, I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Paul wrote about this as well, Paul the Apostle. He said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about the suffering we experienced in the province of Asia. It was so extreme that it was beyond our ability to endure. We even wondered if we could go on living. Some versions have, we despaired even of life itself. But then he goes on and writes this. In fact, we still feel as if we're under a death sentence. But we suffered so that we would stop trusting ourselves and learn to trust God who brings the dead back to what? Back to life. If God can solve the death problem, he can solve every other problem in your life, ultimately through his power. Here's the fourth thing I want you to remember. It's this. We've got to move on. Cultivate uplifting praise rather than paralyzing self-pity. What I love about David, when you go back to Psalm 57, head back there. He says this in verse 7. Remember, he's in the cave running for his life. He's a fugitive, afraid he might die. My heart is steadfast, verse 7, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake my harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Here it is. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Hey, David, you're in a cave. And you can write those words? Absolutely he can. Your faithfulness, God, to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Hey, Riverview, let's be a church. Let me be a pastor. I want to be a pastor. That trust God, not when things are just going my way, but when things are difficult. To be that kind of mature believer that has this steadfast heart, like David says twice. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. This conviction that says, God, knowing you is more valuable, much greater than any suffering I could ever experience in this world. Here's three tests to know if your praise is deepening in your walk with God. Test number one, is God exalted above all else? David says, man, Lord, I exalt you above the heavens. <laughs> Nothing higher than the heavens. God, I'm pushing you higher. Is God exalted in your life above everything else? Be exalted, God, above the heavens. How do we do that? I have that chart in the notes for you. Let me share it with you. To have this deep faith in God. God is faithful and will bring a good result. That you trust the word of God and the true teaching of it. Don't buy into this false teaching that's out there. Believe in the authority of the word of God. Gain a biblical perspective on life. And then fight the good fight each and every day. Dependent 
striving in our walk with God. God, step by step, I want to depend on you. I don't want to trust in myself. I want to trust in you. God, I don't want to walk this walk alone. I want you to walk with me as you promised you will. When we do that, ultimately that leads to peace and purpose in our lives. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I am saying this. You'll have a peace and purpose that only God can give you. Here's the next question we need to ask ourselves. Is my lifestyle of worship being strengthened through my negative, difficult experiences? David says, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. In Psalm 34, David writes this. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Here's a third question. Is my testimony for God making an impact in the lives of others? Know that people are watching you, watching your life. You know, as you come to church every Sunday, know that guests, when they come in, they're watching the way we sing, right? I've had relatives from Germany and other places come who are not believers And they've come to this church and my church back in Chicago. And I will tell you, almost without exception, when they come to church and they see you worship, and I know there may be times like, oh, that's not my favorite song, and I found it hard to get into that song. But to make the decision every time I come, whether it's my favorite song or not, I'm going to enter into worship and lift God up. Know that that is something that pleases the heart of God and also becomes a testimony for anyone that enters this place Because people have said to us, even our friends and relatives from other places, hey, Mel, the people at your church sing like they mean it, like they really mean what they're singing. There's a testimony that we have in the way we worship God. That's what what David says. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. When I was in my mid-20s, I was a... uh, pastor at a church in Toronto, Canada. And I got a job offer to go back to my hometown uh, to be the dean of students at the college that I graduated from. And uh, also to be a part-time pastor at a local church that I grew up in. What excited me about that is I could go home and be close to my mom and dad. I'd been away from my dad, been in Chicago for a number of years, had been away from him. I thought this would be great. I can uh, reconnect with my dad in a deeper way. I can live in the same area. The day I left Toronto and drove down to my new place in New Jersey, that same day I get a call from Norway. My mom and dad were vacationing in Norway. And one of my relatives said, Mel, I, I hate to inform you of this, but your dad just died of a heart attack while here in Norway. You and your brothers are going to have to come to Norway for his funeral. And I wondered, God, what was the purpose of all this, of, of thinking this would be such a good time to reconnect with my dad and knowing that behind it all, God was working out his, his plan. And I remember getting on the plane and flying across the Atlantic to go to Norway for my dad's funeral, being in my mid-20s. And I had a little player, music player with me. And as I was flying over Greenland, it was a beautiful day, and I looked out and I saw the grandeur of the mountains of Greenland. It's, it was just amazing. And a song came on my player that I ended up playing about four or five times as I flew over this beautiful sight of these mountains in Greenland. And I'll never forget this song. I know it's an old song, but I want to play it for you now. Because the Lord has used this song then and many times in my life as I have faced various problems and trials. 
and I thought I'd share it with you as we close. It's called Praise the Lord by the Imperials and Russ Taft. Let me play this for you. And just meditate on the words of it and let it sink into your heart. all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested scheme and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise the Lord. David models that for us in a powerful way. My prayer would be that as you leave this place, 
you would be determined to be that person of praise that lifts up God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Lord, thank you for this example of this young man who was being pursued. The king wanted him dead, living in a cave. Yet he was still determined, determined, steadfast to praise you. God, help us in those times when we face struggles, not to turn our back in bitterness away from you, but to draw near to you and find refuge in you and to lift you up and praise you. God, we love you today. You're awesome. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Let's all stand together and sing.